I'm John Hazelwood, a landscape architect at Hassel, and this is Hassel Talks, a podcast series exploring the diverse perspectives, open-minded collaborations, and creative insights that we know will be the key to navigating the increasing complexities of our world. I grew up in the wilds of Northumberland in Northern England. It is a landscape of dramatic seasonal change, and my memories and the emotional attachment I have to that landscape are driven by that change. Landscapes in constant flux, whether it's a blaze of bluebells on a woodland floor or the rust red of bracken and larch plantations in autumn. This couldn't be further removed from my life in a modern city such as Sydney. But this connection to ever-changing landscapes and those moments of delight have inspired a bit of an obsession with understanding how our city's landscapes and the gardens should be living things that grow and change, not monocultures or clipped and mown, static or finished on the day they're installed. In real life, this obsession looks like boxes and boxes of plants arriving at the office, seeds propagating on every available surface at home. And luckily, the obsession crosses into the design work that I've been working on and has introduced me to leading proponents of a growing movement, a movement with many names. It's naturalistic planting or enhanced nature, but the name doesn't really matter. It all comes with a desire to improve urban environments through a connection to nature. As designers, I believe we have a rare opportunity to influence how nature can change our experience of the city and the urban environment. But I want to better understand and uncover if it all just boils down to aesthetics or if it's actually a much deeper connection within us all that comes from being immersed in nature. In 2015, there was a book published that radically changed how we might approach the design of our urban green spaces. Planting in a post-wild world was and still is groundbreaking and described as a call to action dedicated to the idea of a new nature, a hybrid of both the wild and the cultivated, nature that can flourish in our cities and our suburbs. And so it's great to be joined by one of the co-authors of Planting in the Post-Wild World and the director of Fighter Studio, Claudia West. Hi, Claudia. Welcome. Thanks for having me. Pleasure. Well, as you know, we want to explore the the kind of the subject of, I, I don't really have a name for it, there's many names, naturalistic planting and inspired by nature planting. I was wondering, for the benefit of the uninitiated, um, whether you could kind of summarize a little bit about how you view it or how you like to practice. Yeah, so I think what what differentiates the way we approach planting from uh, other ways of working with plants is that we don't see them as art objects that we put into an ocean of mulch or gravel. So in many ways, we use the, the actual attributes of plants, you know, how they spread, how they interact with their neighbors to bring the best out of them and to really solve modern day planting design challenges, especially in urban environments with these plant attributes. So instead of forcing them into a framework, we allow a certain amount of dynamic behavior on top of landscape being beautiful, inspiring and having deep emotional content. It's really the essence of our approach to planting. How much of the attraction to this kind of changing landscape is actually to do with the floral aspect, the flower itself? It's tremendously important. I think this is really what gives us the deep emotional connection. Planting has to be exuberant with flowers almost all time of year to really get people's attention. There is a general plant blindness that so many people are you know, suffering from right now that unless you really turn up the volume and make it very strong, um, they, they don't even see or recognize planting. But it's up to us designers to not only go for that, but to actually add more to planting because under this vow, 
we can nestle plants that you know the normal visitor won't even recognize plants that hug the ground but that add additional ecosystem services maybe some weed suppression erosion control stormwater function all of these things under these most highly visible species so i think it's it's really up to us to uh, dig much deeper and add these additional layers to beautiful planting to make the most out of these few spaces where we can put planting in cities. The appreciation of beauty in an urban landscape is clearly evident in what could be called the poster child for naturalistic planting, uh, the High Line in New York. At no other public space project has had the influence on the design profession that the High Line has had. So I'm excited to be joined by the co-founder and the chief executive of the High Line, Robert Hammond. Hi, Robert. Hi, thanks for having me. And you're, you're based in New York at the moment? I am sitting uh, in my office overlooking the High Line. Um, as you know, we're, we're kind of concentrating on, on, on this idea of, of naturalistic planting and bringing nature into the city. Um, I think I heard you speak recently and you mentioned that, that what makes the High Line successful has been planting, the design, city and people. Uh, those four, uh, and needs all those four to thrive. Of course, I'm interesting that you put planting first in that in that list. <laughs> I was wondering if you could just tell us a little bit about why the planting became such a central theme of the project. I mean, I think it's what I first fell in love with. I I, uh, I went up on the High Line 21 years ago. I, I mean, I, I think I loved sort of the steel structure, but it was really this juxtaposition of wildflower fields in the middle of the city that really cap- captured me. Nature and man-made, the hard and the soft, the beautiful and the ugly. There's probably millions of miles of, you know, wildflowers growing on abandoned rail tracks all over the world. It can be beautiful, but doesn't really move people in the same way. And I think it's because it's in the city. So it's this weird juxtaposition of this wild nature in, you know, the most man-made environment you can imagine. Growing on a man-made structure when we met in Melbourne, you mentioned that um, the visitor surveys you've been carrying out indicated that the planting is, is the reason for the, why they want to return to the High Line. Is it anecdotal and, and, and examples of how people are interacting with that planting um, and why you think it's such an important aspect? We used to have a little a retail store on the High Line where you could buy a High Line t-shirt. And there was a woman that worked there and she'd worked in retail all of her life. And she said in all the jobs she'd had before, people would start screaming at her, you know, two or three times a day, you know, just have these blow ups. You've probably, you know, sort of seen it happen. And she said on the high line, it only happens once a month. And and I think that's because people feel differently in nature. You know, you're feeling walking on the high line, even if you're buying a t-shirt is different than if you're at a drugstore, you know, with that unnatural light and no plants. So I think people don't even realize what a powerful effect the plants are having on them. Because the High Line, it appears in many clients' briefs. It's used extensively as a precedent. And I agree, I'm not entirely sure that everyone understands that a, a, a huge portion of its success is, is actually down to planting. I don't know if that's because it's not measurable. You know, I can measure how much economy and how much uh, commerce is related to a food and beverage outlet or the retail outfit an emotional connection to planting is far harder to uh, to quantify. Yeah, and I think I think we need to do more studies, you know, on that to actually quantify the economic because it has a huge economic value and it and it benefits everyone that comes, you know, 
makes neighborhoods safer. It improves educational outcome. It improves health outcomes. And those have, have huge, you know, economic effects on the lives of cities. Claudia, is that something you've come across as well? I couldn't agree more. Yes. Uh, we, uh, one really good example is um, a landscape we planted a couple of years back for um, a really large um, uh, business park outside of Philadelphia. The uh, managers of the business park approached us um, just to improve the campus, uh, to stand out from competition. And we did some really large plantings, beautiful, inspirational perennial plantings, removed a ton of turf, installed uh, stormwater management plantings as well. And within just a few years, the occupancy rate went almost up to 100%. And um, we also noticed a, a change in people. I mean, I've spent a lot of time there, not only monitoring the planting but also meeting you know, with maintenance staff and making sure everything is evolving in the right direction. And it was really remarkable how many people all of a sudden found time to stop and to express how much joy this kind of planting is giving them. People who would otherwise just you know, drive up to their parking spot and then spend the rest of their day within a cubicle. <laughs> so it, it felt good to, to hear that kind of acceptance and how that also benefited the business park and um, you know, filling all the different offices with tenants. I guess that brings us to the subject of, of maintenance. If you take each of your projects, Claudia, say the Lancaster Rain Gardens and, and the Highland, they're obviously at opposite ends of the spectrum in terms of maintenance and, and of cost, yet they both embrace this idea of enhanced nature. Robert, could you just talk about some of the, the maintenance requirements on the Highline? Yeah, I, I mean, it's, um, I always equate it to like, you know, when you see a minimalist room, you think, oh, that would be really easy for me to build. And, you know, it'd be so simple to maintain a simple white box, but it's actually really expensive and hard to build a minimalist room and really hard to keep it that way. And that's the same about this sort of quote unquote natural landscape is it's really difficult to maintain. We have about 10 gardeners that are full time and that goes up a few more, you know, in the summer. And Claudia, from your perspective, obviously working in on some projects at the other end of the spectrum, because uh, obviously not not all clients can can um, take on something on the scale of the high line. I just wondered how you how you describe the maintenance requirements on some of your work. We have projects along the entire gradient. All of our plantings start with understanding the maintenance ecosystem and. Um, you know, and are then built on these realities. And that sometimes means that for projects like this, this Lancaster project um, that you just mentioned, uh, John, where we know there's uh, no maintenance pretty much, you know, nothing more than a ch- maybe one or two walks a year, just pulling out the worst invasives. But other than that, it's pretty much on its own. That really means uh, using more of uh, the plant behaviors to tackle maintenance and to ask where are the weeds coming from? And how can we fill these gaps to not even allow them to grow there? So we're actually using plants to exclude the most um, prevalent weeds and uh, build planting up completely differently than we would if we had the luxury of you know, working, let's say, with a highly skilled um, team in a botanic garden, for example, that would produce a completely different kind of planting. Even as designers, it's easy. We get wrapped up in the functional aspects of, of screening or water quality treatment, stabilizing a bank, or actually trying to recreate sometimes unsuccessfully long lost ecosystems. That actually, that day to day experience, the, 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 just the, the power of just stopping and slowing down um, and watching a bee <laughs> is actually forgotten. 
Yeah, I completely agree with you, John. Um, it's it's really amazing how how much that can contribute to life quality. I mean, there's no doubt that conservation and restoration outside of cities really matters. But the types of landscapes that we work on, they often have to recreate nature where there's really very little left. And um, sometimes these landscapes are absolutely highly engineered because in cities there's just so little space, planting has to perform more than just be a decoration. But the beautiful thing is that we can fold so many of the principles and so much of the inspiration that comes from wild planting into even highly urban planting systems that I think that the sweet spot is somewhere where all of these different uh, elements meet. Thank you both for your time. Thanks, Robert, for, for joining us. It's been, it's been good to talk. And Claudia as well, thank you for your time. I'm John Hazlewood. You've been listening to an episode of Hassle Talks. If you've enjoyed this conversation and would like to hear more, be sure to subscribe because I'll be chatting to more people about their adventures in planting. Experts such as James Hitchmo, Nigel Dunnett, Michael McCoy, and the world-renowned planting designer, Pete Udolph. And thanks for listening.